So this is the last week of this series, Sex in a Broken World. And throughout this series, we've kind of had these three fundamental assumptions that I think are so, so important to understanding what we're doing, where we're going, what we're talking about. The first one is God is for you. God loves you. God has been pursuing you from the beginning, and he passionately loves you. And just as the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, Christ came that you would have an abundant life. The second is God is a good father. And like good fathers, he gives his children parameters. Because, not because he wants to make their life miserable with rules and bogged down, but because he wants them to experience that abundant life. We don't give our kids rules because we don't want them to be happy, but we want them to have those rules and those boundaries in place to protect them for their good. And the third is this, sex is good. In a world that tells us sex is great, celebrate it whenever, do whatever, God has given us some very specific context for sex. And from the beginning, it was intended to be a very good thing. It was to be a good thing shared between one man, one woman for life. And, and throughout this series, we've talked about how at times we find ourselves outside of what God's plan was. And there is grace and mercy and there is forgiveness and there is welcome home. And we ask the question, well, how did it get this way? And as we've said, the entire series, when we talk about sex, God created it, sin distorted it. And I think those, that, that kind of foundation is so, so important as we walk through today as well. And I think as a society, we are in a really dangerous place. We have men that now can compete in women's sports. We have men that are allowed into women's locker rooms. Um, I went to update my MyChart account for Mother Francis a few weeks ago. And instead of just male and female, there are now three or four questions that had to do with gender and identity. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's become a very confusing and complex world. And the conversation centered around how as followers of Jesus do we navigate this? How do we respond? How do we love people well? is such an important and yet difficult, difficult conversation. And so I want to just kind of start with a, a couple of things that we're not going to talk about today. We're not going to get into the whole debate, is, is it biological or is it choice, when we talk about same-sex attraction. We're not going to talk about nature, nurture necessarily, trauma, pain, and abuse. Um, I'm not qualified to talk about those things. Um, I'm going to leave that to other people. And we're going to kind of stick to God's Word, and we're going to stick to how we as followers of Jesus live in this world, but not really be a part of this world. And so my goal this morning, right now from the start, is just to simply acknowledge there are people who will identify as LBGTQ or struggle with same-sex attraction, struggle with gender and identity, and trying to navigate this. I think 
no other place has illustrated this so well for me in the recent past than an article in Newsweek back in October of 2021. And in this survey, Barna and Gallup got together in surveying um, millennials and Generation X. And here's what they found. About 30% of millennials will identify as LBGTQ. Christian millennials will identify as LBGTQ. About 40% of Generation Z will identify as LBGTQ. In all of our past research with previous generations, we have never had more than between 6 and 10% of our population that will identify as gay or homosexual. And so you've you got to ask the question, okay, why has it in recent years become so skewed with the percentages? Where, where for years and years, and it's been 6 to 10% of our population, now somewhere 30 to 40% of our younger generation. And that's part of what I want to kind of address this morning. But I want to do it um, probably in a way that you're not really expecting. I want to talk to two specific groups of people. And, and maybe a third if we have just a, a brief minute if my sh- sermon is short. And I say I want to address two specific groups of people knowing there are many, many more groups that we could put into this, these categories. Okay? The first group is those who do not struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay? That's the, the first group. Okay? The second group is those who would identify as LBGTQ or say, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction or gender, gender and identity. Okay? So, what I want you to understand, regardless of which of those groups you fall into, and I think one clarification really quick with the first group, those who don't struggle. My guess and my assumption is you know someone, you love someone who does. There is someone in your family or in your close circle of friends. And I think it is so, so important that we have this conversation as much for their sake. But what I want everyone to hear from the beginning as we start is simply this. God's grace is bigger than anything you could ever imagine. And that is a foundation that we can stand on as we begin this conversation. And so for this first group who doesn't struggle with same-sex attraction, but as I said, I would imagine you know someone who does. I I want to approach this from a story that's in the Bible. And the reason I want to do that is because I think just as we are in a really dangerous place with this topic as a culture, I think our churches are probably in a dangerous place as well with this topic. Because for so long, our message has been, come to us with your sin. Come, you who are broken, and find Jesus. And if you struggle with pornography, come, 
We have a place for you. You are welcome here. If you struggle with addiction, you are welcome here. We want to walk with you. If you struggle with anger, we want you here. We want to walk with you. But for so long now, it seems like when we talk about same-sex attraction, it seems like that's where as a church we put our arms up and say, no, you are not welcome. You do not belong. You do not have a place. And our fundamental hope as followers of Jesus is that someone would be able to hear the message of Christ and that Christ, through the power of His Spirit working in their life, would begin to transform and change that person forever. But the beginning of that is them being able to hear that message and not feeling like the arms of our church are pushing away. And as I said, this conversation becomes so, so difficult but it becomes a lot easier to have when you can put a name with that face. When it's someone you know and care about. And see, as we have this conversation here this morning, I have several names in mind. I have several people who I know and my heart goes out to. And so as I said, we're going to begin with this story. It's found in John, and we're going to start in chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And this is, he is Jesus. And all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And so let's, just, let's start with the really basics of this story that John tells here in his gospel. They bring this woman before Jesus, and they say, the law of Moses commands us to stone this woman. So the question is, Moses' law say that? Does the law back in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, does it actually say that? Well, it says something like that. So here's Leviticus. Chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now, does it say how they are to be put to death. 
in the law. It doesn't say stoning. Right? There, there are other places where it talks about in the law that someone would be stoned to death. But specifically, in this context, it just says they're put to death. And the other thing that jumps out from the story is the Pharisees drag this woman before Jesus. And all of the people gathered around to see how Jesus will respond. Is someone's missing from the equation? Right? Who, who is supposed to be there? Both the adulterer and the adulteress. And what the Pharisees have done is they have drugged a woman by herself who was caught in the very act of adultery. We, we caught her. And, and so maybe she had time to throw something on to cover up. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she's pulled out in the street naked. We don't know. But what we do know is she is probably afraid, and she is probably ashamed, and she is probably scared to death of what is fixing to happen to her. Where is the man? Why isn't he there? See, the Pharisees are using Scripture as a weapon, not just against this woman, but against Jesus. And you can say, well, well the, the Scripture is a weapon. It's the sword. But here's the deal. It was intended to be a sword that would pierce my heart. Not that I would use to wound you. It was meant to be a sword that would pierce my heart and change and transform me. Not that something I would use against you. And that's how the Pharisees are using it in this scenario. And what happens next just simply blows me away every time I read it. Right? Jesus kneels down on the ground, and it says he starts riding in the sand. And we don't know what he's riding. Um, maybe he's riding the sins of the people standing around who have brought this woman. Maybe he knows those. Maybe he's writing a scripture, something like Psalms 103. So far as the east is from the west, as, as far as I've separated your sins from you. And he stands up and he looks at this group of Pharisees. And he says to them, whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. And does not say another word, just simply bends back down onto the ground and begins riding in the sand. This woman was caught committing adultery and drug out in front of everyone to see. And her private sin, the sin we all would hope no one would ever see, 
is now put on display for everyone to see. Everyone knows what she's done. Does she get what she deserves? No. Because the law does say, in this case, both the woman and the man are to be put to death. But she does not get what she deserves. Instead, she receives grace. And I think one of the the problems we have in our world is our perception. We, We have a perception problem, the way that we see. Because so much of our world tells us it is always us versus them. And we separate ourselves into groups, and there is always someone on the other side. There there are those of us who follow Jesus, and there are those of us who don't. There are those of us who identify as gay, and there are those who don't. There are those who identify as Republican, and those who are, are Democrats. And it's always us versus them. And that's such a a problem in our world. And especially in our church. And I just want want to remind you that, that this us versus them thing is not quite as defined as we want to make it. Right? I want you to listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul, and he's writing this letter trying to to just make this understood that all of us are sinners who have fallen short of the glory and the righteousness of God. And we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. And we forget that. And we start looking at our world, it's us versus them. And we rationalize. And we convince ourselves that we're better off than they are. But what Paul says is not there's an us versus them, it's us is them. Like we're all in this together. The only thing that would separate us from someone outside of this place is that the blood of Jesus covers us and cleanses us of our sin. We are all in the same place, desperate for the grace of God to intercede in our life. 
And you can sit back and ask the story like to the Pharisees. You know, doesn't she deserve to die? And I think Jesus might just say, well, well, why do you ask? Why are you asking? Is it because you sincerely care about this woman and you want her to find forgiveness and love and grace and mercy? Or is it because you want to use her to prove a point? Is it because you want to use her to make yourself look better? And I, I run into people on occasion who will ask the question, can you still be blank and still be a Christian? Can you be gay and can you be a Christian? And we'll kind of talk about that. But, but my question to you, if you don't struggle, is why do you ask? Where, where is that question coming from? Is it because you know someone and you sincerely care about them? Or is it wanting to prove a point? Is it wanting to make yourself appear better than they are? Do you ask out of love and compassion? Or do you ask out of self-righteousness? See, there, there are two very prevalent spirits in the world. We've talked about this on numerous occasions. There's the voice of the Satan, the spirit of the Satan, the accuser. And there's the spirit of Christ, the advocate. And it just simply, what, what voice, what spirit is that question coming from? Is it this advocate who I'm for people? And I want them to experience love and grace and mercy of Jesus because I believe it is the power that has changed my world and changed my life. Or is it to place yourself above them? See, Jesus writes in the sand again, and He comes back to talk to this crowd once again. In verse 9, at this those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. One by one, they dropped their stones. And one by one, they walk away. And the problem with the story is the story ends unresolved. We don't know how the lady responds. We don't know what she does from that point forward. 
All we know is Jesus extends to her an invitation that is up to her to accept or reject, and we do not know. And it's fascinating to me that they walk away before they know the answer as well. They don't wait around to see how they, how she will respond. We don't get the story of what happens next week or next month or next year. And the other thing that jumps out from the story is both the Pharisees and Jesus point out the sin. Both of them call out sin in their life, in her life. One's to prove a point. One is to embrace a person. One is to embarrass someone. The other is to invite someone. One is done in a very public setting. The other is done in a very private setting. Once everyone is scattered, go and leave your life of sin. See, the truth is we have said some very hurtful things in the name of Christ. Things that will build barriers to Jesus when we are called to build bridges to Jesus. Simply because we like to stand in the seat of judgment. We like to be the one who is righteous. I think I stole this from Mike Warner one day, but God gave you eyes, plagiarize. <laughs> and he said, and if I'm misquoting you, I'm sorry, but he said, it, judgment, when you stand before the throne, do you think God is going to look at you and say, I really wish you had been more harsh and more condemning, standing for the truth? Or do you think he would say, I wish you had been more loving and forgiving and filled with grace? And I tend to think the latter. That in the end, God sees my sin as the sin that put him on the cross. And his grace is the only reason I can stand before Him. And, and so to our church, to those of you who don't struggle, will we welcome someone who struggles with same-sex attraction? Who struggles with their identity? I would say yes. Will we affirm that lifestyle? No. And we can do that. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And the problem when we neglect the grace side and simply stand on the truth side, we completely discount the truth. And the same is said for grace. When we lean far more to the grace side than to the truth side, we completely discredit the grace 
and what Jesus did on the cross to accomplish salvation for us. There's a mess in the middle between grace and truth. And so to the second group, and the reason I wanted to talk to the first group first is because I wanted the second group to hear what I wanted to say to you. And I go back to this second group and just remind you as we started, and we started every message in this series, that God is for you. God loves you and cares about you, is pursuing you. That God is a good Father and that He has given parameters in our life for a purpose and a reason because He cares for us. And third is sex is good when it is in the context that God designed it to be. One man, one woman for life. And we enter into a world where it has become so complex and so difficult. I got a message on my phone from an app that I'm signed up for that just sends daily messages this last week. And the start of it said, do what makes you happy. And in the context of this message, it was, it was right on track. Do, do the work in your life that makes you happy. But I think our culture and our society, our world, would tell you that goes across the board for everything. Just do what makes you happy. And let me just say, that is terrible, terrible advice for life. Just whatever you feel like doing, just do. It's fine. There are no consequences. There are no repercussions. There's nothing that would come from it. Just do whatever makes you happy. And society would tell you that if there is guilt and shame there, that it's a bad thing. Just stop. Get rid of it. Stop worrying about it. But that guilt and shame so many times, and this goes across the board as we've talked this, this series about sexual um, immoralities. We've talked about people having affairs. We've talked about pornography. We've talked all of that across the board. That guilt and shame that society says, that's a bad thing, just get rid of it. To an extent, yes. Don't live in that guilt and shame. But at the same time, that guilt and shame so often is the voice of the Spirit of God at work in our lives saying, hey, we're off course and we need to correct. We, we need to course correct. We need to get back on track. There's a purpose for a good purpose for it, a healthy purpose for it. Now, do you live in that? No, not at all. But at the same time, you don't ignore it. You don't ignore it. So, so what do you do? Talking to someone who identifies as LBGTQ, someone who says, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, I'm struggling with identity, what do I do? How do I navigate this? And I would just simply say to you, God has called you to live a holy life in your sexual relationships exactly the same way He has called me to do that. I understand there are people who feel that inclination. And I would just simply say that your role in life is to abstain. Just as God called me to be holy in my sexual relationships, 
He has called you to the exact same thing. Not because He needs that from me. Not because He needs that from you. But because He understands the pain and the hurt on the other side of sin. Because He understands, as He said in the very beginning, that death is going to follow sin. And the problem is the death that follows sin is not this immediate death. It's a slow and painful process over time. Having to live with the consequences of our actions. Having to live in the world that we created. And society will tell you, just own it, believe it, that is your identity. Let me remind you, your identity is found in Jesus Christ. You were created in the image of God. And He loves you, and He is pursuing you, and He is calling you to live a life of purity. Because there is no other sin that we create in our world besides sexual sin, I think, that creates so much guilt and shame on our life. It's why this woman, I'm sure, was broken and embarrassed in this moment, drug into the public arena. God's desire is for you to live a life of holiness. God's desire for me, for every single one of us, is to pursue Him with all that we have. And, and I, I hear people at times go, well, why would God create me that way? And again, we're not going to get into the, is that biology or anything else? Why, why would God give someone those urges or those tendencies? But we could say the same thing about so many different things. Why, why would God give me the urge, the desire for food? If I couldn't just do whatever, eat whatever I want. Why, why would He give me the desire for sex if I can't just do whatever I want, whenever I want? Why, why would God give me the urge for money and things and possessions if I couldn't just become greedy and go after anything and everything I wanted. It's because all of those were created by God and distorted by sin. And our world will tell you, listen, our world will tell you it's fine. Embrace that lifestyle. There's no repercussions. Do you, do you want to know why the, the psychologists are saying those percentages were so distorted? Going from 6 to 10% to 30 and 40%? Because our society has made it safe and cool. That's what the article says. The researchers are saying. Our society has made it safe and cool. And we have a, a generation of teenagers and young adults that are looking for somewhere to belong. They're looking for somewhere where they feel like they matter and they fit in. 
And that part of our world, that part of our culture is saying, come on, you're welcomed here. You're embraced here. It's time for our church to step into its proper place. To say, you're welcomed here. You're embraced here. You know, this church constantly amazes me. Do you realize for the past six to eight months, we had a family that was Muslim coming to Shiloh. And they were here every time the doors were open. Because they didn't feel like they had a place that belonged, where they belonged. And this church loved them. We had someone who was doing Let's Start Talking and teaching them English with the Bible. And did they, they just all of a sudden become Christians before they went back home? They, they didn't. But here's the thing. You never know what those seeds that were planted over the past year will turn into. You will never know. And it may be generations before, before that family sees the fruit of it. It may not be the mom and dad. It might be the kids. But when they came to Shiloh, they felt like they belonged. And before they left, there was a group of, I don't, I don't know how many, 30, 20, 30 people that went to their house, gave them a Bible, prayed over them, and said, we love you, and we'll keep walking with you somehow across the globe. My question is, as a church, are we willing to do that with everyone? With anyone? Not saying we're going to affirm that lifestyle, but willing to say, we welcome you and we want you to know Jesus. Because we believe deep down inside, your identity is not in your sexuality. We believe it's in Christ. And we want you to see it. We want you to know it. We want you to embrace it. And we're willing to walk with you through the hard times. As we, we wrap up this series, I want to say to everyone, thank you for the grace to have difficult conversations. I will say for me, this has been a hard series. It's been a difficult series. One that a lot of prayer has gone into. And the reason I say that is because I want every one of you to know that God has come to invite you to an abundant life.
and to find freedom from sin. This email right here, help at Shiloh Road, is there. And if you are struggling with sexual addiction, if you are struggling with pornography, if you are struggling with identity and same-sex attraction, if you are trying to battle right now against Satan, again, I'm asking just to reach out for help. And in your subject line, just say, I need help. And for another group, I would love for you to continue to reach out and say, I can help. Because a really thing, cool thing has gotten to happen over the last couple of weeks. I've got to make some connections with our church, with people who have said, I'm struggling, and others who said, I can help. And just indiscreetly put them together and said, y'all go It takes incredible courage if you're struggling to send that email. And let me again just promise you the only person who will ever see the email is me. And all I will do is connect you with another person who's been where you are. Because I believe there is healing and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And He is our only hope. And regardless of the shame you feel, regardless of the hurt, point your eyes towards Jesus. And at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the outstretched arms of our Savior on the cross, inviting you, welcoming you, The invitation to be with Him. So if I can just encourage you again, reach out, help at shilohroad.com, and I would love to get you connected. Father, today, just acknowledge, Father, this is a hard message. It's a difficult conversation. And so, Father, through my stuttering and rambling and incoherent thoughts at times, Father, my hope and my prayer is that Your Spirit would be alive in this church and make those words more than I could ever make them. And, Father, it's our hope and our prayer that we get to see people's lives transformed and changed through the power of Jesus Christ. Remembering, Father, that it is us whose lives have been changed and transformed because of the grace of Jesus. Father, we all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Sinners saved by grace. We thank You we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.